This is True Builders. I'm Josh Withers, co-founder and managing director of the True Platform, a suite of talent-related software and services. I'll be talking to founders, executives, and investors about building companies, the ups and downs, and lessons learned. Our goal here is to share these insights with the other builders out there. Let's go. All right, here we are. You ready to go? Let's do it. <laughs> okay, I wanted to start out with a really softball question for you. I saw in your TCV bio that your first job was a barista. So I actually worked at Starbucks for, in high school and college. And so the hard-hitting question is, what's your favorite coffee drink today? Yeah, it's an excellent question, Josh. I'm really glad that you asked. <laughs> I really like a cappuccino when made properly, you know, with the like full-on foam at the top. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm glad you asked this because my biggest claim to fame I don't know if you follow ice hockey. Do you follow ice hockey? I do not. Okay. Shamefully, I'm a California kid. Yeah. That, so. <laughs> As a Canadian in the house, obviously yeah. ice hockey was a huge part of my growing up. But I served coffee to Sidney Crosby. Oh wow! So I do know who that is. I, I do know enough about hockey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in Nova Scotia when I was a barista there. So yeah. Very yeah. cool. Yes, the cappuccino is a bold move. So <laughs> actually, another Canadian friend of mine, John Mackey, in in here at True ordered one the other day when I was with them in San Francisco. And I was just like, wow, you're taking a big risk that they make yeah, it right. Really? Always. Yeah. And so for him, it's like the the milk to coffee ratio. So he doesn't really care if the foam's right, which I thought was an interesting take on the cappuccino. So <laughs> anyway, there I'll you go. All right. Yeah, All right. What, a, what a good one looks like. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. There you go. But no, I look, I, I was looking forward to having you on, you know, since we first started working together, I always just frankly appreciated how you really cared for and, and, and partnered with the founders that you were, you were backing. And, and frankly, you know, you did the same with the rest of your board and the management team and, and with us. And so anyway, I just always thought you were super insightful, but also really helpful. And I just look, not everyone's made that way. And I, I just appreciate that. And so I wanted to bring you on and talk through your experience and, and how you go about doing that with the companies you work with. Well, thank you so much, Josh. Thanks for saying that. I mean, it's an absolute privilege to spend some time with you here today. I think the same is true right back at you. I mean, seeing how True works with founders and is able to kind of entice a really broad reach and network of pretty impeccable and diverse and super interesting characters has always been hugely inspiring. So yeah, an honor to be here and and great to spend some time with you. Perfect, perfect. Well, you know, where I thought we could start is you know, your recent move. I mean, you just you just made the move to TCV. And, you know, do you want to touch on that briefly? Yeah, very happy to. So for context, it's been two and a half months now in the seat, as you'll know, Josh, after just under a decade in my prior seat. I think after that long at one firm, it can feel very much like leaving home. For me, that was certainly the case. But you've got one career and change can sometimes be good for the soul. I'd argue. I'd say that there were two reasons in particular that I was excited by the opportunity at TCB, in particular in joining the TCB partnership and helping to head up the firm's software practice out here on the West Coast. The first relates to the place of technology in society. And, and this is something that you and I had spoken about quite a bit, actually, around you know just some of the boards that I was involved with previously. But I think the past couple of decades have been characterized by this big wave of tech investment and massive value creation 
being centralized or largely linked to consumer technology. So think about Netflix, Spotify, Facebook, LinkedIn, all TCV portfolio companies. So this firm was absolutely at the forefront of that massive wave. I think the firm then used that orientation to remain at the fore of that wave as it also transitioned into software. So the consumerization of software, product-led growth, et cetera, characterized by a lot of the firm's vertical software investments in the likes of Toast and Built and Clio. I think having consumer and that customer value proposition as the heritage of the firm and as the heart of trying to really kind of interrogate the value proposition of a business model is super important. And I spent a lot of time during my gardening leave, actually just studying the history of entrepreneurship. And to me, the core to success of so many iconic firms and founders has been that rootedness in customer value proposition. So Ford, Bezos, Senegal, you know, that obsession with the customer is really important. And so I think regardless of the manifestation that technology takes over the next decade plus, I think that TCV's ability to properly evaluate and value that proposition puts it in pole position to continue to ride a lot of these trends and, and frankly, be at the forefront of them. So that's the first reason that was super important to me, you know, like how does the firm approach value and and what is really important when push comes to shove. I think the second thing, and, you know, it can't be blind to the broader macro environment, but markets were turning. And I thought that a firm that had flexibility and proven capability in making money across the full continuum of growth would also be in pole position to really seize this opportunity of a volatile and frankly dislocated market. So, to make that more concrete across TCV's 28-year history. They've made money in a lot of ways across that full spectrum of growth. And that, to me, was super important. Everything from venture growth to growth buyouts to crossover and publics, I think that flexibility makes a firm more resilient. And so I was super interested in you know, also honing my skill set around that. It's early days, Josh, but I'm having a fantastic time. I've never right. felt more motivated. <laughs> Yeah, perfect. And I love the fact that you sort of went through the history of not only the firm, but in, I assume other firms you were looking at, and then just the the landscape in general. I mean, it sort of ties into a question I, I had for you. How has the VC landscape shifted in the last, I was kind of thinking like decade, and then I was also thinking this is the last like 18 months, maybe you hit both or tie those together. But, and I don't necessarily mean in terms of like, what is the business of venture capital? I mean, in you know, investing in companies and do you do seed or growth or anything like that? But I'm just like the how you go about being a VC and, and partnering with with founders and companies. I'm, I'm curious what changes you've seen and through your reading and through your own experience and, you know, through your search this last time around. So, yeah, totally. I think maybe the best way of answering this question for me is how things haven't changed or what hasn't shifted in the VC landscape, including across the past decade I've been doing this, or even within the past 18 months. I came over to San Francisco, as you'll remember again, in mid-2021, when most people were actually leaving. Yeah, great timing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> great. One of the things I noticed, though, is just how similarly folks think. Like We're all kind of 
reading the same things, listening to the same podcasts, wearing the same gilets. And though in many ways, I don't feel cut from the same cloth, something about being from Newfoundland, having spent over a decade in Europe, etc. Um, I'm totally not immune from this. I think it was Munger who said something like, you know, mimicking the herd invites regression to the mean, which I think is is definitely true. And so we all try to be contrarian, but by the very fact of the word that being contrarian is pretty unique, we all end up looking very similar. And I think 2021 was a really important lesson, both for individual investors and for firms across the board. We were all very much swept along in this massive euphoria. There was the, you know, the vaccines that came out in early 21, approved super quickly. We had this global shift from offices to homes and everyone was completely surprised by just how robust companies and businesses were coupled with just vast amounts of, you know, consumer subsidized spending from stimulus packages. So there was this massive techno optimism. And I think that sentiment infected investors who went after tech firms almost indiscriminately and valuations went bananas. We all live that and we all in some way, shape or form are guilty of that. But in, in retrospect, with the benefit of hindsight, it's so easy to see how everyone got swept up. But pragmatically and kind of intellectually, it wasn't necessarily justified. I think people thought that the rate of technological innovation was going to improve dramatically but it just didn't necessarily feel that way in practice, again, with the benefit of hindsight. One question is, like, has something like AI, which I have no doubt we'll talk about in this session, you know, changed any of this whatsoever? But I also question how investors are currently behaving. Are we overcorrecting in a similar sort of lemming form? Are we kind of shifting or are we all, are we all shifting together? And are we all actually prepared to kind of be intellectually honest and curious consistently to challenge a lot of what might look like the right way of deploying and allocating capital? So that kind of market momentum behavior, you know, will continue, obviously. But I think it's super interesting just to appreciate where the momentum is today and how we're all kind of moving together. Yeah, no, that's all. It's all super interesting. And I, you know, I was having a conversation yesterday with someone who I hope to have on this podcast at one point, he's been associated with some of the the sort of leading companies around AI over the last several years, I won't get into some of the details here yet. But, you know, he was talking about like, kind of the same thing where, you know, obviously, AI is a super hot topic. And, you know, generative AI is, is a big one and general AI. And, and he's like, look, I'm not interested in that. That's like the 80% that's going to get commoditized quickly by the big brands. And, you know, I'm interested in the 20% that's harder to solve for that's vertical focused or diving into deep problems. And I just thought that was an interesting take. And I sort of, you know, it makes sense intuitively, but there's a lot of homework you have to do in these spaces to go dig in there. So that's some of the optimism. And I think a lot of the optimism is certainly back in San Francisco and then kind of tech broadly speaking, and AI is a big part of that. But then there's some cynicism out there about, well, like, what are we actually doing in the real world in terms of like, you know, infrastructure and hard problems. And, you know, so you look at some of the stuff going on in, in, in climate tech or other aspects of the world that are sort of beyond the just the the bits and looking more at the atoms. But anyway, it feels like there's a lot of room still left and excitement for growth and innovation, even though we're in the middle of a, of a sort of interesting period from a 
you know, macroeconomic and political point of view, internationally, all that. But anyway, where are you most excited about, you know, the potential for growth and innovation again, or, or trends you're seeing? And I, I realize this is maybe personal, but just curious what, what you're personally excited about that's going on. Totally. I mean, you spoke actually just a lot about this, which is also, you know, why we've always been so aligned. But I think there was an argument back in the late 2010s that the kind of innovation coming out of Silicon Valley didn't really have much societal benefit, right? It was almost like investing was quite decadent and we were measuring kind of ROI versus frivolity, almost epitomized. I mean, again, this is the personal opinion, not a firm view, but by Web3 or instantaneous delivery of things like food, et cetera. I mean, what was actually, what was tech actually bringing to the world in terms of real change and in terms of mission criticality? That's always been something I've been super interested in. And I think, you know, my hypothesis is that the relationship between capital allocation and real needs has been, in fact, kind of more aligning, which I'm super excited about for sure. In terms of just trends that I'm tracking, I mean, we already spoke about some of the macro trends and what that means for flexibility and just capital allocation and how capital is deployed. The second one, which is one you mentioned as well, is just the big geopolitical opportunities that we're presented with as we're thinking about eliminating black swan risk as a response to geopolitical tensions and response to China and Russia and even COVID, the global fragmentation of supply chains, deglobalization, reshoring, friendshoring, and all of these bipartisan policies that we're seeing that are really sort of subsidizing, but also in many ways galvanizing domestic production and innovation. So that's everything from defense tech, Josh, through to food security, health security, vaccine manufacturing at scale, like we saw throughout COVID. I think that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity, again, around real needs. And I think so much of that is being catalyzed by some of these geopolitical levers. And then the third thing I'd say is just technological, right? I mean, we're clearly in this watershed moment right now. Generative AI is amazing, right? And I think we'll find ourselves, we find ourselves currently in this world where we have, you know, the pre-AI world and are still trying to figure out what the kind of like post-AI world looks like. And the question is to me, what happens? What does it mean for the world and investors? And to be honest, I don't think anyone has any clue, but there are, in my view, three different outcomes. So the first one is nothing happens. It's a hype. I think that's pretty implausible, but let's see. The second is that AI begins to look something like the internet. So, you know, the internet delivered questionable productivity gains to society as a whole, but created enormous value for some companies. So maybe it looks like the internet, which would also be huge. And our job would therefore be about trying to understand where value will accrue. Uh, Or the third option is that this fundamentally turbocharges everything and everyone gets miles richer and GDP grows at accelerated rates we could not even predict. And I think we're still just trying to figure out and you know, have the benefit of being growth equity investors where we can look at indicators and track what's actually happening in the market in order to be fast followers of, of where change is actually being galvanized and allocate capital accordingly. But 
all things that I'm tracking really diligently and trying to read about constantly. Yeah, no, great. Um, it definitely has echoes of the periods you mentioned, right? Like the internet phase, you know, I, I grew up in Silicon Valley and kind of saw all that happening and then saw it not happen and then happen again, right? And then, and then you know, went through the, the mobile SaaS revolutions too. And, and, you know, it's just, there's like echoes of this stuff, right? Totally. It's, it's, I always wondered it's, it's, what growing yeah. up in Silicon Valley was like, Josh. I mean, I grew up in Newfoundland where my grandfather was yeah. a fisherman. So <laughs> what, what have you noticed yeah, that's different a- about now. Oh man, this this isn't supposed to be about (laughs) me, but the spirit of trailblazing and entrepreneurship and taking risks and these sorts of things are inherent here and for good or bad. Right. And I think that's a sort of defining element of the place and it's, it's grown so much. I mean, I'm, I'm not even, you know, some people would consider me on the younger side, not my kids, by the way, (laughs) but like, I remember cherry orchards and things around here, you know, and it was because we used to be a farming community and that, and then it, and then it became Silicon Valley. Right. But, and so those are gone. Like all the orchards are gone and it's very dense now. And I live in Mountain View and like the downtown here used to be like, there's a cool like beer garden now that used to be a wiener schnitzel. You know what I mean? Like that's the, the, it's just changed like the, the quality of of the food and everything else. But I think it speaks to just like pushing forward, building, growing, developing. Again, these are these are good and bad traits. But I, I think in the end, it's, it resonates with my personal spirit. So it's so it's good. It's like this kind of unflinching optimism and, and pushing ahead. And so anyway, I, th- I think these are, gu- are good things overall, but it does lead to these, you know, high peaks and oh, low valleys, right. And so we'll see what this this next version of, of, of this excitement brings, you know, so awesome. But anyway. yeah, yeah. So kind of on this note, I was thinking about like, you're obviously seeing and have seen presentations and pitches around, hey, hey, this is my business. This is why I should give us money. I'm curious, like, how are you evaluating these things differently now, if at all? You know, any advice for founders out there who are, you know, raising in this new environment that, you know, you would sort of coach them up on that that might be different than, you know, in previous years? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you have a lot of different compounding factors that founders either didn't have to think about a lot for the past five to 10 years, or that are pretty idiosyncratic to the current market environment. So inflation compounded with attrition, compounded with employee burnout post-pandemic and remote world, compounded with just the uncertainty of the new cycle. And so I think if anything, as you know, board members and investors, having a bit more compassion is definitely paramount and just necessary in this world as we're just trying to navigate how we're thinking about management caliber and how to really incentivize our management teams just broadly. And I think that trickles down to advice to founders as well is just, you know, really thinking about and talking with the founder communities in which they're, you know, part of about what is the best way to continue to motivate employees and to maintain cultures that are strong and robust and can build and innovate for the next decade as well. So that's definitely one camp in terms of just, you know, how to support companies in this environment, I think the number one, two, and three thing that founders are still grappling with and that lean on investors 
for hasn't changed, which is just talent, talent, talent. You know, like how do we get the best talent? How do we motivate our talent? How do we think through hiring, training, firing, growing, etc.? And so as investors, it's kind of incumbent on us to also read a lot about what that means historically and try to figure out for ourselves how to be in a good position to provide some of that advice and support. Then to your the latter part of your question in terms of tips for founders, just generally, particularly in this market, this is going to sound completely self-serving, Josh, but I think one thing that I noticed over the past few years, 2021 being kind of the zenith of this in so many respects was just that investors started to be treated like rent extractors, right? Or started treating themselves like rent extractors. And I would I would suggest that we're not just a necessary evil, but we do actually have stuff to offer, right? I mean, we are constantly trying to ensure that we have our fingers on the like markets, our fingers on the macro political pulse. We're constantly talking to people. I think when you know companies get new board members, they now have a group of semi-highly functioning people who will try to bend over backwards to help those folks succeed. So I would encourage founders to like find the hungriest investors they can who equally have a chip on their shoulder and have something to prove. And that something to prove is like relatable to founders as well. I think that capital was a commodity for so long, but fundraising is such a unique opportunity for founders to figure out who they actually want to partner with and who they could actually build something with. So ask questions, do diligence on investors, treat it as a partnership instead of as a, you know, one-off thing that you're dreading. You know, as I was doing my very extensive diligence on TCV, I was overwhelmed by the sheer number of positive references that the firm got in particular from the companies with which they've partnered over the years. And I just say like look for a partner like that. Yeah, it's a great point and you know you said venture folks and investors aren't just, you know, rent seekers and I'm like, well, not, <laughs> not, you know, hopefully not all of them, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, there are there are some that that that's the case and that's why I think to your point references is so key, right? It works both ways in that regard, the diligence. And then kind of on that note, I, I mean, I do think there are different philosophies around supporting founders from a board perspective or an investor perspective, maybe an advisor or whatever, maybe not even formally on the board. But what is your philosophy? How do you, how do you sort of think about the best way to, to partner with a founder or a founding team? I mean, you touched on some of it already, yeah, but totally. I'm just curious. And you'll have seen this firsthand. I'd say it's twofold. Like one, and this is obvious and, you know, is a common phrase used in the investment community, but is is actually one of the best pieces of advice I'd ever been given. But it's just that the real relationship is not in the boardroom. It's outside of the boardroom. This should take up a lot of time. And it should also therefore mean that investors are pretty diligent about the number of boards they're on. You know, firms that take more of a concentrated portfolio approach are going to be the ones who are pounding the pavement for you day in and day out. And related to that, secondarily, I think that trust is about knowing that you can disagree, that you can really get into an argument, but that that other person will still show up tomorrow and give you 100%. 
it's not about agreeing on everything. It's really about intellectual honesty and debate and curiosity and having that kind of mutuality of respect. So I'd say those are my two key takeaways from from the partnerships I've had the privilege and honor of, of being privy to. Oh, that's great. So I did a panel recently with a, a group of founders who were pretty early stage. And so their questions were maybe different than, you know, growth and, and beyond. But there were sort of the usual, or not the usual, but the, the super important topics, right? Like talent acquisition and you know, when do you hire senior versus junior? How do you assess people? That a little bit of conversation around the sort of remote versus in-person debate. I'm sure you're getting some of those questions too, but are, are there others? Like what are the most common sort of support questions you're getting either from firms or places you're invested or just entrepreneurs in general that, that you happen to know in your network or your meeting or mentoring or whatever? Yeah, the number one question is always like, what are you guys seeing from other companies in X, Y, or Z? Mm. And right now, I'd say the X, Y, or Z is about operationalizing AI. And Mm. how should we be thinking about what the threat is to our company, where value is at risk, what part of our moats are still sustainable, but also like, what are we supposed to be doing right now? And, you know, TCB have been really trying to leverage just the depth of our portfolio to help our partner companies, our pipeline companies, our portfolio companies answer some of these questions. So we've tried to create a preliminary value at risk framework that folks can run their portfolios through. We've tried to create a database of different case studies of what folks are trying to do in order to stay on top of these. So some of the best practices we've seen include you know, some firms who are creating a synthetic PL, right? So if they were to create a competitive firm from scratch using native generative AI, what would that firm look like? What would the PL look like? And how should they think about operationalizing AI to kind of begin to replicate that synthetic company? So just going back to first principles. But I would say that just being again that kind of knowledge resource and trying to collate a lot of these different ideas from across the board and present a kind of coherent example of best practice and, and, you know, suggest what might be good and what might not be helpful is one of the other purposes of investors, of course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Do you have a a stance one way or the other on the remote versus in office debate? I have like a personal stance, which is that it is. I mean, so I think you're well- in the office right now, right? So, <laughs> case in point, Josh. Yeah. I just think that, listen, like it won't surprise you just given everything else that we've spoken about here today. But if I think relationship is important and I think trust is key, then so much of the input to both of those things is just actually understanding how people work and are motivated and are incentivized and building up that social capital that is far and away been depleted over the past few years of not being Mm -hmm. together. And like, maybe you can do that in offsites, but I feel like people are so awkward in offsites, regardless, even if we all work in the same offices together, you know, you just, I think you need kind of the opportunity. Historically, we called this just like, you know, 
the water cooler chats. I, I'm less of a like believer that that actually happens, but I do think that compounding interactions over time actually allows for folks to feel a bit more vulnerable with one another. And it's in that vulnerability that you can build relationship and rapport and therefore trust. And especially at, you know, an investment firm, you need trust so much because you need to have really sometimes vociferous debates about topics and you need to come away from that understanding that you're debating the issue, not the person. And still have a you know a strength in the partnership in order to then approach the next debate equally as you know first principled as the first i love that and you know i think a lot of companies are sort of debating these merits and i think you know sometimes it comes down to just yeah how they get work done what is the work they're doing you know how are their teams structured you know i've talked to some people about well you know we have big inside sales or customer success teams that are on the phone all the time we hire a lot of entry level staff that are, you know, have great potential, but they need to learn. And so how do you do that from home? Like it's so much easier sitting next to in that kind of classic bullpen environment, right? And you could just through osmosis and being next to each other, not just like what are they saying, but the tools and the systems, everything, you just learn faster, right? And and then all the things that you talked about, the the building of that. Yeah, I, I love I haven't heard that expressed the way you did in terms of the vulnerability piece, I totally resonate with that. Like there's some people here at the firm that I've worked with for a long time that I just have had a lot of dinners and drinks and meetings and in-person events with. And there is that, like they're like brothers and sisters to me sort of at this yeah. point, right? And so we, had, we hadn't had an offsite for a couple of years because of COVID and everything. And then we'd had smaller get togethers or whatever, but we had a big one in New York last year. And it was just such a pent up demand to see each other. Like people were hugging and like, you know, like just, just like joy. Right. It was, it was like a family reunion almost. And we had this new partner who joined us who runs our LATAM, our Mexico city office. And he's like, it's like, you guys are like an Italian family, all hugging and yelling and you know, all this, all this energy. And I love that. I was like, yeah, that's great. Like we, we, we missed that. It was like this pent up demand for that. But to your point, it leads to like conversations behind the scenes or offline that that are often vulnerable about like what people are trying to accomplish and what they're facing, how they're feeling about it, that, yeah, it's hard, hard to build that in, in this environment that we're, I, I say this, I'm pointing at the screen for those of you listening. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the other way of thinking about it is like, you use the family analogy. I like the team analogy, right? Sure. Like you can't have a sports team when you're all training in silos. It just doesn't necessarily... Right connect properly. You need to understand how people think as well, which I just believe is something that you get from spending more time proximately with people. Now, this is not to like in any way forget that remote work also allows and permits a lot of flexibility to folks. And therefore, there's like a lot of cases in which, you know, some more autonomy is needed in that relationship between employers and employees, of course. But I think we can still do that in a construct that is just, you know, also about galvanizing more productivity and output for a firm predicated on ensuring that the relationship between people is as strong as possible. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I, look, I, I mean, I think it's funny because we talk about like, okay, the office versus remote debate. I mean, I think the reality is everything's hybrid. It's yeah. just yeah. it's just what percentage is in person versus not. But like literally everything is hybrid. Even if you're in the office five days a week, you're going to be talking to someone in a remote way, right? Like other people on the team or customers or whatever, right? And so 
yeah, everything's hybrid. It's just like, what's the sort of percentage and, and how do you structure that? And so my advice to these founders the other day was exactly that. Like, don't just wing it and go, hey, intuitively, I want to be working from home. So we're doing that. Like, no, what's the, what's the cadence for communication? What do you miss from that? And how do you, how do you sort of supplement it? Like, is it within person? Is it with structured video calls? Like, do you need two hours instead of 30 minutes? Like, what, like, what are you doing to really think through the challenges and, and the sort of pros and cons of the way you're set up? And so, but yeah, I mean, in my mind, everything's hybrid. It's just your percentages, right? So. Totally. Um, I was listening to this great Tyler Cowen lecture that he was giving at LSE last week on AI. And he starts off with saying, you know, like one thing that's just going to be more important is kind of charisma and how folks show up. And I think maybe another way of saying that that's more relevant to this conversation is just like, relationship really is going to matter. And so much of like, if you break so many jobs down, so much of it is about relationship and sales and, you know, properly understanding what you're putting out and what that other person needs and therefore coming to, you know, optimized endpoints together. So I hear you definitely. And I think that there's, yeah, there's going to be a, you know, continuous discourse around this and trying to crack what is the right way of doing things. I don't, pretend to have any answers here whatsoever, just personal preferences and, you know, dogmatically strong views on the importance of in-person relationship building. Oh, that's great. I mean, that's kind of whole, the whole point of this, these conversations, right, is, is to just get a variety of perspectives. And, you know, hopefully what people take away is they resonate and find pieces that fit within their framework. And maybe it's a little bit from you, a little bit from someone else, and they create their own unique worldview from that. Right. And, and that's, that's great. So you also touched on something that I think a lot of people are struggling with is you very, very briefly mentioned it just like kind of burnout from the last few years. And I think it's been both like this sort of isolating remote work in some cases for people who have always been in offices or in the field or, you know, with people there's been other demands on them, whether it's COVID related or, and, and more recently, sort of, you know, economics issues. And so there's just been a lot, right? And I, I've talked to a lot of executives recently, great executives who are basically saying, I'm out, right? They're, they're doing like fractional, they're doing consulting, they're doing interim. We launched up a, a new business around this time called TrueBridge that does that. And so like good for us because we get to capitalize on like all this talent that is now sort of looking for those types of roles. But it just speaks to the fact that I think people are sort of like, look, I've, I've been just burning hard for a few years now or longer. And, you know, I don't want to do it right now because it's, it's rough out there. And so I guess my question kind of on the back of that, that whole monologue there is how do you personally stay energized and fresh? And how do you think about making sure that you show up the right way? Yeah, something I think about constantly though i would argue that i've never been hungrier than where i am now you know over 15 years into my career part of that is attributed to the fact that i did have some time off between mm. firms and it became abundantly clear to me in that time that work is my hobby like you know i would still be getting up super early reading as much as i possibly could about technology and entrepreneurship and you know I went to J 
Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan because I read Chip War and became obsessed with semiconductors. <laughs> so, like, maybe I'm a massively outlying nerd, but I feel like finding that passion is super important to not getting burnout. And I have, I feel so, you know, just blessed and lucky to be in this job that provides me with that level of fulfillment. But what also I think, you know, when I travel a ton and when I, and travel is super important for the job and can be really energizing. But when there's a bit of misalignment between not having kind of discipline in my schedule and routine, I feel like that's when I lose the most energy. Like having discipline is super important to me. Also having perspective, right? So much of my time off was spent with my family. And I find having that kind of orientation as the reason you're doing so much of what you're doing to be the best method for really kind of orientating oneself in the world and appreciating, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge believer in like the concept of work-life balance because I think it shouldn't have to be a balance so much as kind of like a harmony of mm. how do you fit everything together and try to get the best out of yourself in all of those situations, which is the only way to preserve yourself from feeling like sometimes a failure in every single situation. But I think having that perspective has been super helpful to me. And then, you know, the last thing, Josh, is just maintaining curiosity, right? Like my biggest fear is that as people go over the age of 40 or 50, they lose curiosity and stop thinking about whether or not their views of the world are the right ones or they need to change like that kind of open-mindedness. I mentioned Tyler Cowen earlier. I mean, he's like one of the most energizing people to listen to because I don't think he is trying to predict what the shape of the world is ex ante. He actually listens constantly. And that's something I always want to do. So ensuring that you're cultivating that curiosity constantly to me is a massive preserver from burnout or feeling like you're a cog in some sort of broader wheel, like feeling like you have the agency to determine like what it is that you're doing and learning. And, you know, I come from a family, my sister and I were the first in our family to go to university and I feel very lucky to be where I am today. So I also completely appreciate that this is a massive luxury and has to do with the knowledge work job that I'm in, you know, versus a lot of other jobs that exist in the economy. But I also just think that, you know, even for someone like my father or for a host of other folks who work kind of more in blue collar labor, like also having this relationship with family and that perspective and maintaining curiosity, like those principles abound regardless of kind of end industry. So that's what keeps me energized and, and fresh. I love that. Yeah. So it's been a common theme around, yeah, just like curiosity and kind of learning and how that creates purpose and motivation. And mostly it's been applied or it's been in a conversation around someone's sort of career trajectory, meaning if you're sort of self-aware about where you are and you, and you continue to learn and be curious, opportunities will sort of present themselves and you can tackle them. And, you know, all of a sudden you turn around and you have new responsibilities, new roles, and, and you're kind of up-leveling yourself. But I, I think the same is absolutely true, like just personally, right? Because I think to your point, if you're motivated and having fun and, and there's passion around it, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like a hobby, right? But then you can literally apply that to hobbies outside of your career or how to, you know, your family. Like I have lots of friends who I grew up with that 
are in, you know, in the field or doing work that that isn't in tech. And they apply the same principles to their role and they're building things and and how to how to how do we build more complex things for our customers? And then and then you can, yeah, apply this to like, how do I be a better, you know, parent? I have a teenage girl. So like, what, what does that look like? Like, how am I supposed to do that? Right. Like, let me, let me get curious about uh, what that's supposed to be. Right. Or, you know, I had a bunch of injuries. I'm probably not unique to this, but uh, I've talked to a lot of people recently who have come off some things, but yeah, you have to like refactor your life. Like, can't do the sports I used to do. Like, okay, I'm going to get curious about what can I do? How do I do it? How do I stay like upright and healthy uh, after some of these injuries? Right. And so, but it keeps you motivated and going through it. So I think you, you, this principle basically applies to everything, broadly speaking, right? And I just kind of heard that over and over again. So it's good. Totally, totally. No, super aligned. Great. Well, I think that's a good way to wrap on that. And, you know, I just really uh, appreciate you taking the time to chat through some of these topics today. Yeah, right back at you. has been a lot of fun. All right, great. Thanks. You've been listening to True Builders, a true platform podcast. If we can be helpful to your organization as you think about building and scaling your company, please reach out. You can also visit trueplatform.com for more information. Thanks for your time and support. See you next time.